Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses, who is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security. He is part of the Crack Russia team at CNA and one of the world's leading experts uh, on battlefield unmanned systems, uh, including and especially Russian ones. Uh, Sam, always an honor and pleasure having you back on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Always appreciate being here. Thanks so much and a happy new year. Uh, Happy New Year as well. Uh, Always, uh, again, a pleasure having you on. Uh, Our program today is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the Department of Defense. HII delivering hard stuff done right. And Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Sam, uh, thanks very much again uh, for joining us. Uh, a lot of activity since last uh, we had you on, even though we've been talking about these on uh, our uh, Washington roundtable since the start of the year. Bring us up to speed uh, on uh, where we are on the Bakhmut uh, Solidar uh, front, uh, the role of Wagner Group, uh, Dmitry Prigozhin, uh, certainly uh, becoming a center of power, more openly critical. Uh, you were among the first people to note uh, how much, how acerbic his criticism of Putin uh, was becoming, and he's clearly trying to establish himself as a power center. Uh, and in fact, uh, changing battlefield commanders, uh, you know, relieving Surovikin uh, and putting uh, or returning Valery Gerasimov, uh, the chief of the general staff, uh, back to the job was seen as, uh, again, an assertion of, uh, you know, sort of institutional dominance. First, walk us through on a granular level what's happening around Bak- Bakhmut um, and what it means. Another town um, a small town which was seen as somewhat more relevant than Solodar uh, was claimed to have been retaken. Uh, Kiev uh, rejects these assertions. But anyway, give us an update. Indeed, uh, Wagner mercenary group has rushed its soldiers, basically World War II style, against the Ukrainian positions and uh, overwhelmed large parts of uh, Ukrainian defense forces in the Bakhmut. Wagner and the Russian MOD claim to control a significant portion of Bakhmut. In fact, they claim to control all of it. Ukrainians are denying that. There's heavy fighting for Solidar, which is another small town right next to uh, Bakhmut. Solidar has uh, salt mines and a uh, massive system of tunnels and catacombs below the city. Wagner justified its brutal attack against the city as a necessity to secure the town and all the tunnels that can hide a lot of equipment and personnel. Uh, But Ukrainians are denying that Russians have full 100% control over both cities, and Russians are claiming full 100% control over Bakhmut uh, and and most of Solidar. Uh, This has been a very tragic uh, attack for all involved, uh, considering the losses, considering the level of destruction uh, that that was visible. Uh, Wagner basically... um, forced its its soldiers to attack um, uh, w- without much armored 
protection without um, without a lot of tanks or vehicles. Um, there's plenty of evidence on social media of uh, Wagner mercenaries and Bakhmut basically attacking in human waves. And a lot of these people were killed. Uh, a lot of Ukrainians also lost their lives. So we're basically seeing the, um, the fighting um, almost become this World War II, World War I style uh, conflict uh, where human waves sometimes rush from the trenches with the intent to overwhelm the adversary. Um, Ukrainians are fighting a much uh, more technical fight. Uh, they're more successful in maneuvering and outmaneuvering. But on some parts of the front, um, the Wagner human waves were simply too much. And so we are going to see what happens in the next several weeks as uh, Ukraine either launches a counteroffensive or perhaps seeks to consolidate its forces elsewhere. And Russians will seek to build on the Wagner-style tactic with additional advances. Uh, you indicated that earlier Evgeny Prigozhin uh, was critical. Yeah, I'm, of I'm sorry. I was going to. I was going to correct myself. I said Dmitry, and I should have said uh, Evgeny. So I apologize yeah. for that. No, that's that's quite all right. He was critical of how the Ministry of Defense was handling the war. He and Ramzan Kadyrov, who is the leader of Chechnya, were openly critical of Russian generals and uh, many strategies undertaken. Uh, since then. Um, he he was called to the uh, red carpet in front of Putin, and um, I believe there were some serious conversations where he and Kadyrov actually uh, um, have uh, lowered the intensity of their criticism. Prigozhin um, is no longer openly challenger, challenging or criticizing the MOD the way he used to. He still uses his Telegram channel as um, as a way to. Uh, to basically uh, bounce his ideas about how the war is going. Uh, for example, there's a, a controversy uh, that's playing out on yeah. Telegram with some of the Russian military top brass visiting the trenches and seeing soldiers basically in a very, very disheveled, unkempt state. Obviously, there's a war going on. And so there was a lot of critique about how soldiers looked and smelled, and especially the fact that they grew beards, that they didn't have proper hygiene at the front. Right. And... Uh, so the discussion, obviously, uh, from someone like Rogozhin and others is, what's more important? Is it the combat capacity or the fact that um, soldiers look and smell nice for, for the generals? And so even this morning, he uh, sounded off on his Telegram channel, basically using very harsh language against the top brass without naming names um, and saying um, that they should visit more often to see how the fighting is actually going before they talk about some of these trivial requirements. I, and I wanted to ask you about that leadership change and also point out, right, Klyshchivka is the other small town uh, that uh, the Russians claim to have retaken, not, uh, aside from Solodar, right? So try to give this impression that we're actually clawing uh, territory back. But talk to us about uh, the shift from Surovikin, uh, Sergei uh, Surovikin, uh, back to Valery Gerasimov. Uh, there are those who say, well, Gerasimov's plan didn't work well, uh, which is the reason why Surovikin took charge. It's not really fair to call this Gerasimov's plan either. This was more sort of Putin's plan that everybody has been uh, executing, uh, even though I'm not trying to help Gerasimov here uh, at all. But what does the shift in leadership mean from in, in practical terms? Well, it's the assertion of control by, by the Kremlin. It's the uh, control of the war narrative by the Kremlin. It's uh, showing the world that uh, the MOD is directly involved in the war. In, in more ways now than ever before with, uh, with Gerasimov essentially personally responsible, how the war is going to progress. 
And uh, in some ways, uh, this was done to sort of assuage the critics like Kaderov, like Prigozhin, like many others who felt that um, <clears throat> the uh, Russian generals in charge, uh, besides Sorovikin, weren't really very successful or weren't really aware of how the war is progressing. So installment of Gerasimov means that all of the uh, tactics, all of the uh, operational um, decisions now have to flow directly through him. Um, and again, um, there's now a, a person in charge of this conflict and perhaps someone who may bear full responsibility about how the war unfolds in 2023. Um, as Putin has indicated earlier in his discussions with military and civilian officials, and especially with the civilian officials, um, for example, there's now a person attached to every major initiative to help Russia survive sanctions. And that individual in the ministry, um, meaning in, in the government ministry and the government department is going to be responsible about the progress. And that individual will bear full responsibility of, uh, of how such uh, government actions will succeed or not succeed. So it is likely that while Gerasimov is a loyal Putin ally, he too will bear full responsibility about how this war goes. At the same time, as uh, has been indicated earlier by, uh, by many experts, including from my own team, uh, Vladimir Putin rewards loyalty. And through it all, Gerasimov and Shoigu were loyal to Putin. Right. Um, and so he's installing one of his top loyalists to command and manage this war. It means that um, there would be no dissent, no criticism, no, uh, no counter, uh, counter debate of what is and isn't going to happen with the Russian forces. So ultimately, Gerasimov's installment means that someone who is very loyal to Putin is uh, officially in charge of this war. Let me, uh, we've got uh, a couple of minutes left and, and lightning round, and I should point out to folks that we talked to Jack, Dr. Jack Wapling of the Royal United Services Institute uh, last week, uh, one of uh, the top uh, experts on the Russian military and the war, uh, to, to give us sort of his sense on, on where we're going from a strategic perspective. Um, the two, uh, three questions in uh, roughly the five minutes that we have, uh, Sam. One is, uh, there's a massive uh, debate uh, ongoing about the kind of equipment that Ukraine is going to need. Ukraine has been se uh, sending the alarm signal up that we're going to need a lot more of armored vehicles, tanks uh, in particular, longer range uh, fires as well. Uh, and you months ago, along with the CNA team, was saying that there could be a very large Russian mobilization coming up to as many as 2 million people. We're hearing a half million number, um, right? 300,000 already have been mobilized. As you said, many of them have unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending on what side you're on, being chewed up uh, in um, sort of the old style advances that we may have seen from the Russians. What's the kind of capability the Russians need? What's the kind of mobilization the Russians are making right now to get ready for a very big spring offensive? Uh, because it looks like Putin might come again through Belarus again and try to put pressure on uh, Kiev again, as the Ukrainians have warned. Well, the initial mobilization of 300,000 uh, basically uh, strengthened the existing lines. It uh, replaced... Um, the personnel and the officers that were killed, uh, and it essentially stabilized the front. Uh, but not all of the 300,000 are um, actively serving right now. Tens of thousands of Russian soldiers are actually in the rear. Uh, they're either training or getting um, re-equipped or waiting for orders 
And so of the 300,000, actually uh, a smaller percentage is fighting. But that was necessary just to stabilize the front line after all of the massive losses that the Russian military suffered in 2022. If Russian military were to attack, the existing force is not enough. And so they need additional forces, again, perhaps in the hundreds of thousands, to try and overwhelm Ukrainian defenses the way Wagner did in Bakhmut and Solidar. Uh, and so another mobilization may be in the works. Of course, when the Russian government flat out denies something, uh, when the Kremlin spokespeople officially are saying that no mobilization is discussed, you have to kind of take that with a grain of salt because uh, the Kremlin was saying that there would be no mobilization in the fall of 2022, and then shortly after mobilization followed. So this next wave would be important for the Russian military to actually launch an attack against the Ukrainian defenders. And, and that's why Ukraine has been sounding alarm that it needs more weapons, it needs more systems, it needs to replenish the systems that were lost, or systems that, that are in disrepair. The uh, Western tanks are a very effective uh, way of countering Russian advance. And so they've been talking a lot about what kind of tanks they need and in what numbers. United States is already uh, sending Bradley and Stryker fighting vehicles to Ukraine to replace the losses. Um, and uh, Russian defense industry is furiously repairing and building more equipment. Uh, to sh it is shipping tanks, armored vehicles, and other systems to the front. Again, in preparation for a possible counterattack or counteroffensive either by Ukraine or by Russia at this point. Uh, and at this point, uh, do you believe that Solidar and Klyshchivka have fallen? Well, uh, right now, I have um, evidence that I can see on social media. And of course, evidence on social media is just a fraction of what is actually happening. And both sides are claiming uh, full or partial control over the city. It is clear that Russian forces have advanced um, to a certain extent, but it's also clear that they've sustained very heavy casualties. And so those very heavy casualties may not allow them full control of the villages and the towns that they claim to control, which is why Ukrainians are saying that they're still in force, they're still in, um, they're still present there, and they can still um, extract heavy casualties against the Russian forces. Uh, and uh, one uh, last uh, question. Um, you have been tracking um, quadcopters, how they're being used, especially commercial ones, uh, as well as how Russian industry is flexing in order to be able to deliver. Give us a quick update uh, on the capabilities, the Russians, and how they're improving their capabilities. And again, right, I mean, despite global embargoes, microelectronics are still flowing to Russia, uh, as well as Iran, and making it into these weapon systems. That's correct. A number of public reports have recently come out to um, underscore the claim that uh, Russia is still importing a large number of uh, necessary components, a lot of microelectronics and, and other key elements are still making its way to Russia through friendly countries, through uh, Russia's remaining allies. What I'm seeing more on social media, at least, is a growing uh, use of um, racing drones, uh, rigged as kamikaze drones. Basically, these racing drones are first person view drones, FPV, uh, basically an operator wears a headset and uh, can see what the drone is seeing. Uh, essentially, uh, um, these are used for racing. These drones fly fast um, and uh, they are sometimes difficult to interdict. When a powerful bomb is attached to this FPV drone, it can actually cause significant damage. And we're seeing a growing 
share of uh, Ukrainian and Russian forces starting to use the FPV drones. When it comes to the Russian defense sector, there were a lot of promises made that Russian defense companies, as well as Russia's regions, are going to open up and uh, launch mass-scale production of quadcopters for the front. All sides and Russians are especially now seeing quadcopters as fully expandable technologies that have a very short life that could be effective for a set number of missions or maybe just a few days. And so a large number of these tactical drones is needed for all manner of missions, for intelligence surveillance, reconnaissance, for combat, for artillery spotting, and now for kamikaze missions. And so a lot of Russian regions are now claiming to launch drone manufacturing centers, as well as drone training centers, so that they can train not only civilians, but the mobilized uh, forces how to operate the drone. But uh, we have to sort of question the quality of this training, because it's not clear if it's actually standardized across the MOD or across the country, learning how to operate a small quadcopters and actually operating it in combat are probably two different things. And so um, we are going to see a, uh, a growing number of commercial technologies used this year by all sides. We're possibly going to see Russian defense industry finally turning around and fulfilling its promises of delivering needed technologies to the front, such as hundreds of quadcopters a month. The quality of these deliveries is unknown at this point because Ukrainians are learning just as fast. They're adapting just as fast and in many ways adapting much faster. They too are going to use commercial technology and also homegrown technology. We're going to see Russia use more Iranian drones like the Shahed 136, 131, maybe a number of others. We're going to see Ukraine try and field a number of long range um, drones that it domestically manufactured to counter Russian attacks against the country. And uh, we're going to see the evolution of tactics such as all sides trying to evade each other's counter UAV systems, electronic warfare defenses, and uh, other air defenses aimed at uh, mitigating the threat of not, not only commercial quadcopters, but also military long-range drones. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much uh, for joining us and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much. Thank you. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners uh, to take a look at the week ahead and discuss whatever else is on his mind. Byron, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure, Vago. And a very happy year of the rabbit uh, to you, wishing you all longevity, prosperity, and peace. And likewise to you and your family. <laughs> Indeed, and, and to our entire audience. I should have said that at the very top of the show. Um, so, uh, in your latest note, you uh, talk about uh, geopolitical risk and how to be thinking about it. And two, obviously, large geopolitical risk matters are the, uh, Russia's continuing war uh, on Ukraine, uh, as well as the Allied response to it. And then uh, what could uh, appear to be a self-inflicted uh, wound, uh, which is uh, the debt uh, ceiling uh, debate in the United States. House Republicans saying uh, that they are not going to go for a clean increase. They want government spending cuts, including to defense. Uh, the White House has said no negotiations and We've seen Jim Manchin, uh, Joe Manchin, uh, the West Virginia uh, Democratic uh, senator saying, look, at the end of the day, we're going to have to negotiate this. And the sooner we do it, the better off we'll be. Uh, there appears to be others who are saying the same sort of thing, whereas uh, each side is arguing its own corner. More broadly, we, we saw the Budget Control Act. We've covered this extensively for over the fear that we could end up in this situation. From your standpoint, what are some of the geopolitical risks? Because 
America's borrowing capacity has still not recovered from that original BCA debt default flirtation we had in 2010, 2011. Yeah. No, nor defense spending. I mean, if you look at the cuts under the, you know, the Budget Control Act of 2011 relative to what the plan was in, those, in that period, it definitely cut defense spending volume. And I think we're still seeing, you know, some of the ultimate ramifications of that today. I, I don't know, you know, I, I think maybe there's consensus that there'll be some kind of deal. I'm leaning more towards a deal that's frankly probably symbolic because I think, you know, you're going to see this whole debate put on steroids in the next couple of weeks, really more on the, the side of what the cuts could mean. Um, the ranking member of the House Appropriations Committee, uh, uh, Representative DeLauro from Connecticut, <laughs> had sent around a letter or letters last week to the different agencies um, and departments asking for, you know, their assessment of what these budget cuts would mean. Now, this is a little separate from the debt ceiling, but I think it's all going to get wrapped into this. <clears throat> you know, if you if you funded the federal government at an FY22 level in, instead of what the plan is for FY24, what does that mean to your department? So, <clears throat> you know, I, I think between, um, you know, the the rollout of, of those responses, the hearings <clears throat> that will go on when the FY24 budget is finally released in March, you know, what, what Congress hears from their constituents during the February and April recesses. Um, you know, I, I've always believed it's easier for Washington, D.C. to give than it is to take back. <clears throat> and right. You know, you're still not seeing a real comprehensive plan. This is all kind of very vague in the clouds kind of stuff. It's like, oh, we're going to cut federal spending. Well, who, what, where, when, how much? Um, and it, it's those details that I think, you know, as those get sharpened up, that's really where the uh, the, the 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 sticky points start uh, emerging in this. And I I kind of use a rough analogy to the Clinton President Clinton Newt Gingrich standoff. Uh, you know, when, when again, you know, a uh, energized House Republican leadership came in with all sorts of plans to cut defense, to cut uh, spending and, and um, lower taxes. And, you know, they ran into something of a brick wall and Bill Clinton and said, that's fine, but I'm not negotiating on this stuff. It wasn't over the debt ceiling. <clears throat> but, you know, ultimately you saw, you know, what was really arguably a fairly symbolic uh, set of changes to to federal budgets in, in that that standoff. So I don't think you know the way President Biden seems to be positioning us right now. I don't think we're going to see a rerun of the Budget Control Act, um, and you know that the the risk that is going to be there for defense spending. But we're sure going to hear a lot about it in coming coming days and weeks, uh, as I think you know the trade associations, uh, the companies themselves start talking about this. Right. What, is it, what does it mean? Um, and that, frankly, is going to be, you know, in, in Wall Street term, the proverbial headline risk. But I ultimately don't think the headlines, you know, when this is all said and done, are going to be as dire for defense as maybe some of these, uh, this positioning or posturing will, will, will frame. We heard from uh, Ron Epstein of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, uh, on yesterday's show that this has not yet become a Wall Street uh, issue, right? Folks are not as worried about this at this point, right? They're looking more at short-term rate increases and the like. Just real quickly, 
is does Wall Street need to weigh in before we sort of get over the finish line? Because historically, whether it's been on uh, you know government shutdowns or uh, on borrowing limits, it's when Wall Street tends to freak out that that people have a tendency, you know, it focuses people's attention. Yeah. Um, do you think, and, and at what point does the street start worrying about it, right? I mean, at this point, it's extraordinary measures, but a default isn't until June, right? Well, I mean, you know, Northrop Grumman stock is down, you know, I think I looked at it today, but I think it was down 15% year to date. So uh, someone has been spooked by this and, and you could track a lot of this to really the house uh, speaker election, you know, and kind of what that might have signaled for FY24 and the debt ceiling. So I do think uh, maybe the broad market really hasn't reflected this. It certainly reflected it in the 2011 run up to the debt ceiling, um, you know, precipice and the S&P downgrade on U.S. sovereign debt that was really unprecedented too. So um Defense fell <clears throat> with the entire market. I, I use a chart in my notes that shows that. Um, so I would agree with Ron, you know, from a broad market standpoint, we're not there yet. But I think, um, you know, let's see how this plays out in coming coming days and weeks. You know, are there committees for, you know, what, what are the specifics of the cuts? You know, who blinks and who holds firm on this? And right now... Right. You know, everything that I hear, the people that I respect, um, you know, dialogue and, and exchanges I have with them, it's like they're they're concerned about this. I mean, the the optics, the positioning, you know, the 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 polarization we've seen in this country, um, you know, it doesn't bode well for uh, for an easy solution to this. Although ultimately, as I said, I think it's it, it's going to be a battle of public opinion. In my note, I put a link to a study that had been done on some of these prior uh, debt ceiling debates and and how important public opinion was in, in ultimately shaping the outcome of this. And that's why I think, you know, who, who bangs the gong the loudest? And as I said, you know, I think when people see something being taken away, that's tangible, a specific benefit that they get, um, they're act, they're 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 apt to react more negatively uh, right. to who's doing the cutting. Um, uh, let's uh, move uh, to uh, war risk uh, really uh, quickly, and I want to also uh, dive a little bit into uh, General McConville's comments last week about you know I I want new new stuff, not just more new yeah. old stuff uh, in, in terms of the inventory. Uh, but um, war, um, uh, on the war, uh, we're looking at a new phase. We heard at the top of the program from Sam Bendet about uh, the Russians gearing up, preparing for uh, the offensive, Germany balking at sending tanks, although today uh, the headlines were that Berlin uh, is okay with Poland, Denmark, and, and other leopard operators to ship their vehicles to uh, Ukraine, uh, but also suggesting that Berlin is not going to do this. Uh, and on, on, and since uh, the show we taped on Friday, where we talked a little bit about Finland and Sweden's uh, accession to NATO and Turkey uh, being an impediment, uh, it now looks like Hungary is uh, also uh, an impediment. Talk to us a little bit about all the dynamics, the nature of the conflict and the well, allied I, yeah, response really, and the like. What I really was trying to do, Bago, you know, as much as we've all focused, myself included, on the Russia-Ukraine war in China, <clears throat> you know, it really stemmed from a discussion uh, an event last week that I participated in that, uh, you know, it's kind of like, hey, what, what are some of the other things that people are already worried about? And I think top of mind was Iran. 
and a new uh, government in Israel that I think is may, may be a, a lot more testy about <clears throat> any any hint that that Iran could be moving to a nuclear breakout. Um, there are a whole bunch of things in Central Asia, um, notably Armenia and Azerbaijan, which you're familiar with, obviously. But I I feel, <clears throat> um, you know. We tend to look at these as local conflicts, um, as tragic as they are, but they do draw in outside powers, as we've seen with Turkey, Russia, and Iran. Uh, and, you know, I throw in the unrest you're seeing in Peru and Brazil. Um, the statements by President Yoon in South Korea about nuclear weapons and, you know, the signaling that may be going on there with North Korea most likely going to be conducting additional nuclear tests <clears throat> this year. You know, all this, I think it's just important to kind of step back. Um, you know, the, the bumper sticker, it, it's a more dangerous world. But, you know, when you start going through some of these dangers and what they mean, um, you know, it's, it's some of these local conflicts that actually end up being bigger deals for uh, the broader geopolitical and, frankly, conflict outlook. And then and then also they have bearings on, on defense contractors as well, too. So that's kind of what I delineated in in my uh my my sunday night note that went out go ahead and are are we doing enough uh to think through what the implications of all of this are right i mean we tend to be very bandwidth constrained sometimes uh right i mean uh ukraine uh and uh russia are taking up a lot of bandwidth obviously the administration is also trying to uh, you know put appropriate focus on on china uh even as china does a charm offensive are there any one of these conflicts that you're somewhat more concerned about than another as a potential well, I mean, obviously, I think Iran, just because of the proximity to oil and energy, uh, you know, that and, and their capacity really to do a lot of damage. Um, uh, obviously, North Korea as well, too, you know, but I wouldn't even rule out the unrest you've seen in Peru, um, you know, the events recently in, in Brazil. Um, you, you know, they Venezuela, some of these other um really tragic and sad issues in failed states in Latin America, <clears throat> they have caused refugee movements. So, you know, I think the other part, and I keep making this Vago, is uh, people tend to look at these as kind of individual siloed events, when in fact, a lot of them are interconnected. And, right. you know, okay, Russia gets bogged down in Ukraine. Well, they don't have a lot of time to kind of you know, step in and manage this or, you know, negotiate something between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So it's linked. <clears throat> and I'd say the same thing, you know, I, I still wonder as much as we focus on China and Taiwan, if China has all sorts of problems cropping up in, in Southwest Asia uh, and Central Asia, I'm sorry, um, you know, that's got to be a set of security concerns that, that they're going to make. I mean, someone pointed out, you know, one of the interesting geopolitical risks was, the Taliban basically banning women from working in uh, NGOs in any kind of, of position in Afghanistan and what that might do right. to the stability of Afghanistan. Well, that has repercussions for Iran, for Pakistan. Um, you know, so so we tend to look at these things as, you know, siloed when in fact they have multiple ramifications and implications. <clears throat> and it's not, we can't think through all of these scenarios and what they mean, but I think it's just important to keep a, a an eye on those um, and, and be ready. Maybe, maybe you know, for it's not that important for contractors right now, but um, I'd keep an eye on them. Put it that way. 
Uh, and uh, obviously, one of the concerns that, uh, you know, Turkey and Azerbaijan uh, may want to cut off that bottom part of Armenia uh, to connect Azerbaijan to Nakhichevan and, and how the Iranians get involved in that, which is a concern. Let me uh, focus briefly on General McConville's uh, comments. Uh, we completely understand where the boss uh, is coming from. And we heard from Dr. Jack Watling uh, of the uh, of Rusi, uh, as I mentioned, uh, higher up in the program about some lessons uh, from the conflict. Uh, and sort of the notion that that which we're expending in uh, Ukraine is not necessarily that important uh, in a China context. He points out, well, it, th that capability is very important to keep deterring Russia, uh, no, no matter what happens. Uh, from your perspective, what is it that we should be doing right now in order to build up production of these systems uh, to get these supply chains going, uh, because whether it's in Europe or the United States, we're just not making enough artillery shells. It's going to take a couple of years to get missile production going again, right? How do we need to think about this as a as a gigantic well, think, organism? Yeah. So General McConville spoke at the Association U.S. Army uh, breakfast last week, and you know he made an interesting observation that maybe we just ought to think about stockpiling some of these. Uh, parts of weapons that are the bottlenecks now as we start to scale production. Um, and, and, you know, those might be the, it may be, this is maybe more Defense Production Act, but I think it's also something that <clears throat> there may be ways to incentivize or frankly pay contractors <clears throat> to buy things that can be stored for multiple years. Um, and, and so, you, you know, as much as people talk about, oh, we want a stable, predictable outlook for the defense industry, life ain't stable and predictable. I mean, right. conflicts are going to come and go. So you need to build a system <clears throat> that can flex and is more resilient and is able to, to meet demand, uh, when it goes up and then frankly, not have a lot of excess capacity and, um, wasted assets when when you know demand turns down and that's always going to be a trick but i thought he made what i thought was a very valid point about hey let's just buy stuff that <clears throat> we can store um and we can put together when uh, when the balloon goes up but i absolutely agree you know I, i've written about it <laughs> look at the amount of of artillery <clears throat> that china expended against at the time it was kimoy but i think it's now kimin uh an island off of uh directly off the coast of China in the 1958 crisis. I mean, the idea that this is just going to be all precision weapons without any land attack forces, artillery, uh, any kind of Asian contingency, um, you know, uh, there, there's obviously, I think, going to be a land component to it. And so to think that this is, you're not going to need high margin, you're not going to need 155 millimeter ammunition, you better think again. Uh, but again, I mean, it's it's also the notion of modernizing uh, your your force and and getting better capabilities out there as yeah. well. Uh, and he did know. say, and this was another point that I think he made is, you know, we don't want to replace old with old. We want to replace old with new. Right. <clears throat> the example he cited was, okay, we're cascading M113s, uh, armor personnel carriers. We're not going to go back and buy M113s. Correct. We're going to buy AMPVs built by BA Systems. Um, we're going to, we're going to, you know, and I think a lot of European countries that are going through the same thing um, are, are, they're not going to go back and, you know, try and scour the global market for BMP one or twos. Uh, they're going to buy more modern armor equipment. And that, right. that frankly is going to be upside for the, the global defense sector. 
Uh, and uh, real quick, uh, we've got about 30 seconds uh, left. We're a little bit over time. Uh, give us a look at it the week and the things that the audience should be uh, paying uh, attention to. Well, it's a big week for company earnings. The U.S. defense primes are all going to be reporting this week. <clears throat> I do think it's interesting the day after Lockheed Martin reports, uh, their CEO is going to be speaking at Heritage Foundation on defense supply chain or supply network issues. Um, Jack Watling, who you mentioned, is also going to be uh, speaking at Wilson Center on <clears throat> really the, the Western microelectronics that Russia continues to be able to, to import for their weapon systems. I think that's it, Fago. Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. I look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you.